don't know, I don't know why I always chuckle at that last sound. It's just it's funny. Hey, welcome again. Um, I want to I want to reiterate this uh, our, our missions focus that's coming uh, at the end of this month. Uh, it, it really is kind of so key to what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church. Twenty percent, you know, the giving here goes to uh, global missions. And this Global Church Week that's coming up, even though it's going to be pared down a little bit, we're still having partners from around the, the world that will be coming here. And as has been mentioned, uh, especially on that Sunday night, the, tw- the 25th, I think it is, we are going to specifically um, welcome and, and get to know um, some people that uh, are with uh, Native American ministries, uh, people of First Nations, and we have been developing some relationships over the last couple of years. And this is, uh, in one sense, it's the culmination of those relation building as they're gonna be with us here. But it's also exciting to see the beginning of, a, uh, we hope, an ongoing relationship as God directs and opens those doors. So we want to introduce them to FBC. We want to introduce you to them. And um, so make that... Uh, a priority if you, if you can. Because it's, it's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years, right? The Great Commission, go into the world and preach the gospel. And that cross-cultural world sometimes is right underneath our nose and, and right here. Uh, so we are in step with um, the historical church of Jesus Christ uh, as we participate in global missions. Um, that was the heart of the Apostle Paul. And the passage we're going to look at this morning from Romans chapter 15, and we're about to wrap up. I think next week we'll wrap up with Romans 16, and that'll be the end of our study of Romans after almost two years. But uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 15, and we'll get a little bit of the, the heart, the, the, the mind of the Apostle Paul as that great missionary uh, of the first century. Romans chapter 15, verse 20. And Paul writes, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 52 here, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. And so for this reason, I've been prevented from coming to you there in Rome. Verse 23, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, Whenever I go to Spain, ah, there's, there's, now we kind of get an idea of what's next on Paul's agenda. I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But my immediate now, verse 25, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, well, they're indebted to minister to them in their material things as well. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I want to just share four observations that kind of give us, I think, a window into the heart and mind of this missionary Paul. Four observations, um, starting with this first one. Paul had a, Paul had a global mission strategy. 
fact, if you go back to verse 19, he talks about ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, if you take a, a look at the Roman Empire of that day, vast Roman Empire, and what Paul is saying is, I have preached the gospel roundabout from, he said, Jerusalem for about 1,400 miles to Illyricum up in that region of, of Europe, um, modern-day Albania and beyond, Slovakia, um, Serbia, across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. That's a pretty vast territory. It's like New York City to Houston. And Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel in this vast region. Um, he was a church planner. He, uh, he was called to do this. And he actually bases it on uh, Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 52. Uh, the, uh, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul says, I I'm fulfilling that. That's what I've been called to do. He was a church planter. He had a passion to share the good news of Jesus in regions that had never heard. Um, and it was not that he wanted to step on other people's ministry. Um, he would go plant a church in an area, maybe two, maybe three in a region, and then he'd move on. Where next do people not know, have not heard of Jesus? And that eastern part of uh, that eastern part of the empire, Jerusalem, that central part of Asia Minor and Greece and even north of Greece, Illyricum, the gospel had been shared. Churches had been started. Outposts of faith and the person of Christ uh, ha had been started. And it wasn't like Paul felt like he had to start a church in, in, in every city and town. His mentality was he, he would start a church, and it was expected that that church would pick up the Great Commission and, and spread it more. Paul didn't have to start a church everywhere. He was looking at areas where there were no churches. He didn't want to uh, start churches where other people were doing it. Um, he was busy. And he said in verse 22, for this reason, I have often been prevented in coming to you. The guy was busy because that vast Roman Empire, there's a lot of people who needed to know Jesus. And so he said, uh, hey, the West, Spain, um, that's next on the agenda, which leads to a second principle here, the heart and mind of this great missionary, and that is that Paul um, had a long-range mission plan. Paul wasn't averse to planning. I don't know how he did it. I, I, maybe he opened up a map that, you know, was th that he had, and he was kind of looking around, and there's Spain, and hmm, yep, here, okay, we've got this area covered, and I'm, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do. He was going to Spain. That was long-range planting. He turned his eyes to Spain because they needed the gospel. And the point is that Paul was a strategic thinker. He was a, a strategic planner. There's nothing wrong with long-range planning, considering what, Lord, what do you want me to do? Um, there's a third observation from this passage. Not only was Paul a long-range planner, but he also had penciled into his daytimer, his planner, he'd stuck into his phone, 
uh, if he would have had one, a short-range plan. If you notice, he said, but now, verse 25, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's the, that's the exact opposite of going to Spain. He ultimately wanted to go to Spain, but he said, in the short-range plan, I'm going the opposite direction, he said, to Jerusalem. And it involved the care and, and the financial assistance of the believers in Jerusalem who were suffering. Uh, they were poor. Um, he was going to serve the saints because the saints in Jerusalem needed serving in a, in a big-time way. Uh, a few years earlier, they had undergone a, a, a very terrible famine. They may still have been experiencing the results of that. But maybe more than that, they were under some pretty intense persecution. Acts chapter 8 records that a great persecution set upon the church in Jerusalem, and it scattered a lot of the people. But there was still a believing church, a remnant of believers there in Jerusalem, and they were suffering for the cause of Christ. They probably had lost their jobs for the name of Jesus, lost their, maybe even th their lives, some of them. Uh, there were some real um, tragic and, and destitute believers in Jerusalem. And Paul's heart was broken. And he said that when he was in Macedonia and Achaia, verse 26, that the churches there had been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints to Jerusalem. And so he was going to deliver that precious gift, that financial assistance to the Jerusalem church. Now, why was this so important to Paul? That he would postpone his long-range plan and his passion to get to, Rome, or to, to, get to Spain at, via Rome and kind of shift gears and go in the opposite direction to Jerusalem. Can't someone else take care of that? I've taught it here various times in studies, but um, one of the, if not the most uh, difficult issue, most thorniest problem in the early church was this ethnic diversity between Gentiles and Jews. Uh, it, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, the early church, Peter, James, and John, those early believers, they were disciples. They were, they were all Jews. They were all coming out of Judaism. They were the ones that were taught by Jesus. Acts chapter 1 says Jesus spent 40 days teaching them about the, the coming kingdom. Is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, th these guys were passionate uh, Zionists. I mean, they, it's now that you're going to set up the kingdom, right? You're the king. Jesus said it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that are fixed by God. You are to be my witnesses. And so they, they gathered there in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit descends upon them in Acts chapter 2. And, and they're, they're waiting for Messiah to return. And, and all the Old Testament prophecies of Israel are going to be fulfilled. And man, this is going to be great. Uh, but, but then something funny happened on the way to the kingdom. God tells Peter to go to a Gentile, a Roman nonetheless, centurion by the name of Cornelius and no, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I'm a good Jewish boy. And God, in so many ways, forces him into an encounter with this Gentile who he and his family come to faith in Christ. Of all the 
things that would happen to a good Jewish boy like Peter. A bunch of Gentiles start trusting Jesus. He comes back in Acts chapter 11 to the apostles in Jerusalem, and he's got to explain himself. There's, you've got a lot of explaining to do here, Peter. And he ex- explains these guys had trusted Christ as their Savior. What am I to do, he said. The Holy Spirit fell on them like he did on us at the day of Pentecost. And the leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Christian Jewish leaders in the Jerusalem church said, well, okay, obviously God's doing something that we didn't expect. And yet that tension between Jews and Gentiles was still there. It's evident in Acts chapter 6 and 7 when one of the the first deacons, one of the first deacons by the name of Stephen, it starts clicking with him. Hey, God's, God's got something else besides this Jewish thing. He's moving on. There, there's a plan of God, and it involves all the peoples. And, and, and Stephen starts preaching this, and guess what? First Christian martyr, right? Stephen gets stoned for it, and conspicuously absent is Peter, James, John, good Jewish boys who I don't think they were so in line with what Stephen was preaching. Stephen dies, Acts chapter 8, a great persecution sets in. Acts chapter 9, well, one of the rising stars of Judaism, Saul of Tarsus, a young guy who was there when Stephen was martyred and all, you know, high-fiving and all for it, he goes up to Damascus to go kill some Christians. And on the road to Damascus, remember the story? He encounters Jesus and bam, this guy becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? And he is commissioned to go to the Gentiles and preach the good news of Jesus. Yet there's this ongoing tension. Paul's first epistle that he writes to the Galatian church, it's has to deal with this. The Jews, well, you, you got you to be more Jewish than Gentile, and they, they just have to struggle with this thing. In fact, they struggled so much in Acts chapter 15, they all had to get together and have a Jerusalem council. Peter, James, John, Paul. Paul brings some Gentile converts, exhibit A. Hey, here are the guys. They've trusted Jesus. What, what are you going to do about it? They are true, blue, born-again believers, and they haven't been circumcised They haven't followed into Judaism, and it's a head-scratcher for these guys in Jerusalem. And yet they come together and they agree, God is doing something in the Gentile world and we must not get in the way. And they they worshiped God and they celebrated it, and they sent him out into the world to evangelize the Gentiles. And yet there was still always this little kind of, you know, problem this ethnic diversity thing. And now here are the the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are suffering. I mean, they've lost everything. And here is Paul starting these churches in Greece, Macedonia, Achaia. And I know God planted on his heart, this is a wonderful opportunity to celebrate our unity as the body of Christ. And so they pick up an offering. They, take a, they collect an offering. Gentile churches collecting an offering for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. 
in verse 26 there of <clears throat> Romans 15, Paul said that it, in Macedonia and Achaia, they've been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were willing, they were pleased to make a contribution. Now, a key word there is the word contribution. It's that Greek word koinonia. You may have heard that word. It's a word for fellowship, for partnership, koinonia. The Gentile church is more than happy to enter into fellowship, a partnership with the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem because we're one body in Christ. And they collected the offering, and Paul says, I'm going to go deliver that offering. I want to be, I, I want to take it. I want to seal this blessing. I want to go and take that offering to the Jewish believers. It was very, very important for, as a testimony for the unity, for the oneness, for the koinonia of the body of Christ, for the joint partnership in the gospel. We are one body in Christ. But then Paul adds in verse 27, they were pleased to do this, but they're indebted to do this. For if the Gentiles have shared, and it's a, a similar word of koinonia, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, in the, in the rich root of Judaism, the, the rich root of the Abrahamic promises made to Israel, if the Gentiles have shared in that spiritual things, well, they're indebted to minister to them in the material things. Paul said it only makes sense. Look, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Judaism. If you recall our study in Romans chapter 11, 9, 10, and 11, but in chapter 11, that was months ago. But um, Paul says that the, 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 the rich root of those, these Abrahamic promises made to Israel well, Gentiles have been grafted into that. Gentiles are, are taking part of that, that rich promises. We're indebted to Judaism because that's where the gospel has come. Gentiles grafted in, and Paul is saying it's perfectly logical. In fact, we're indebted to minister to the poor in Jerusalem. That's what framed the, the, the short-range plan of Paul. There's a fourth thing in this passage, and that is uh, Paul's prayer. Verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to, to strive together with me in, in your prayers to God for me. It's, that word strive is where we get the word agon, uh, agonize, agonizomai, strive be serious about it. Get on your knees. Wrestle with this. Strive. Pray sincerely. Pray fervently for me. Why? Two requests. Verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And number two, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Pray for me, says Paul, because he was going back <laughs> into the, the lion's den. They hated him there, the, the Jewish leaders. Again, he was that bright rising star, that favored son of Judaism, of Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, trained under Gamaliel. Man, he was, he was the one they were looking to. That was a future of, of Judaism, and he, 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 he was a traitor. He was a turncoat. And Paul is going back into that, 
very um, difficult, a very dangerous environment. Pray for me, he said, that I'll be rescued. I, I beg of you, I, agonize in prayer for me. But he said, I also ask you to pray that when I give this gift, that the saints will understand it, will receive it, and will, will be blessed and understand the koinonia, the, the joint participation that we have with, with Gentile believers around the world. We are one body in Christ. Pray that they'll get that message. That was Paul's heart. Verse 32, so that I then can come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. And so may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Um, so, was, so was Paul's prayer answered. Pray for me that I'll be rescued from the bad guys in Jerusalem and, and that the the offering, the gift of love will be received. Well, kind of yes and no, maybe. We won't take the time to go to the book of Acts, but Acts chapter 21 through 25 kind of fill us in on the details of what happened. Paul does go back to Jerusalem, and Acts chapter 21, they plot to kill him. He comes into Jerusalem, and they're going to kill him. Chapter 23 of Acts, he's actually imprisoned and while he's in prison, there's a plot to kill him there. That's been foiled. He's been spared from that. Acts chapter 25, he finally appeals to Caesar. It's like, get me out of Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to get to Rome. So he does get to Rome, but he does it in chains. Probably not the way he expected to get there. I mean, his long-range plan, i got to get this gift to Jerusalem, but then I'm going to come to you refreshed and with joy, and, you know, I, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I can't wait to be around you guys. And th these are friends of his. We'll see next week in Acts chapter, or Romans chapter 16. And he was just longing to, to be there and, and be refreshed, and then a stopping point to get on to Spain. Well, well he got to Rome all right, but it was chained up house arrest and prison in, in Rome. Um, how, how does this whole section of Romans relate to us today? I think it's neat to look into the mind and heart of this missionary Paul and, and get a little bit of a window into his long-range plans and the heart for his short-range plans and, and how he prayed. But where, where does that fit with us this morning? We could, we could spend, well, we could spend several sermons talking about prayer. Um, God does sometimes answer wonderfully and beautifully, yes. And then sometimes he does answer no. Other times he just says, wait. Um, you know, prayer is this wonderful opportunity we have to enter into His presence, into the very throne room of God, and, and talk to our Father. He invites us to do that. He invites us to, to ask Him, well, what's the burden of your heart? He knows. It's a wonderful opportunity for we who are finite to enter into the infinite throne room of God and the sovereign God and 
lay our requests before him, knowing that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and his, his ways are past finding out, and he has plans for us. And ultimately, prayer, I think, helps us connect with his plans for us. He invites us, though, to, to lay it out. Lord, I want to go to Rome, and I, I want to get to Spain. We have no idea if Paul ever got to Spain. And he got to Rome not in the way he probably expected, but that was a part of God's sovereign plan. We could spend sermons talking about the yeses and the noes and the weights of, of prayer, of the value of agonizing prayer, agonizomai, on our knees for one another in prayer. But I, really in our time this morning, I want us to consider something else. I want us to consider how God's plans and, and our plans intersect. How the plans of a sovereign God and the plans of me, finite, Mark, you, how we are to think about this. There's nothing wrong with planning. Obviously, Paul did it. To help us understand that, let's go to another passage in the New Testament. In fact, it's the first epistle written chronologically in the New Testament, the book of James, epistle of James. James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verse 13. I've got it up on the screen here, New American Standard Version, but James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and, and make a profit. Come now. And I guess you could almost interpret that saying, um, okay, let's, let, let, let's think about this, folks. That's what it means. Uh, let, let, let's give some thought here. You who say today, tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business for profit here. Uh, verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. In fact, verse 17, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now. Uh, let's think about this, folks. You who make your plans, you who... Um, think you're going to go to this city or that city, engage in business and for this length of time and, and make a profit. One commentator said, look, this is the kind of guy you'd want in your, uh, your staff, right? This is, this is the, the rising star of your company. You want a forward-thinking kind of visionary guy. Here's a guy who chooses his time. He selects the spots in which he's going, this city and that city. He limits his stay. It's going to take about this much amount of time. He plans his, his doings, what he's going to accomplish there, and he figures out his profits. Man, that's a, nothing wrong with that, is there? Nothing wrong with it, unless, of course, and this is James' point, we are leaving God out of the equation. And then there's everything wrong with it, is James's point. You see, James 
I think wants us to ask just one simple question, and that in the depth of the richness of, of his epistle and of this passage, there is just really a really simple question to ask. Lord, is this what you want me to do? I mean, any one of us can say that, right? It's very simple. Lord, is this what you want me to do? You know, upon what basis or criteria are we making our plans for life? What impacts our decision-making process the most? Our families, the, the pressure we get from a spouse, from parents? Um, the culture of the day, the culture of society, it seems more and more Christians are being squeezed into that culture. We become what the latest book we just read, um, what our friends think, what our inner desires and pleasures lust after and drives us to, I want this. Or is it, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Who or what is shaping or influencing the plans for our life? What James is saying here is, he said, I, I really want you as believers to guard against presumptuous planning. So here are three principles that may help us guard against presumptuous planning right here from the text. Here's the first one. We need to accept our ignorance of the future. Verse 14, first part, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. I mean, duh, All right, common sense stuff, right? We are absolutely stupid when it comes about what's going to happen this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow. We don't know. We're ignorant of the future. The only thing I know for sure is the breath. <gasps> I'm just breathing right now. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. Boy, is that not true? Boy, is, I, you know, 18 years ago... Uh, I go in for a colonoscopy. I see my doc here. I go in for a colonoscopy, and next thing I know, a couple hours later, I'm getting CAT scans and stuff because they find cancer. Now, there's a kind of a life changer. I'm sure you're thinking of some things that have happened in your life. It's like, where, where, where did that come from? We are ignorant about tomorrow. We just don't know. It can guard against presumptuous planning. But here's a, here's a second principle. In the last part of verse 14, we need to accept the frailty and we need to accept the brevity of our humanness. You're just a vapor, he says, that appears for a little while and then, and then vanishes away. I don't want to step on your fragile esteem, self-esteem this morning, but folks, you ain't nothing but a puff of smoke. <laughs> you, you're a little warm breath of air blown out on a cold winter day that, and it's gone you're just a little bit of mist a little bit of vapor you're here today you're gone tomorrow the frailty the brevity of humanness of, of humanness I remember talking with a gal back in Nebraska in the, the church I pastored there she was celebrating her 105th birthday 
And she says, Mark, I can't believe how quickly time has gone. You know, I was probably 28 years old at the time. I thought, by the time I get to 105, you know, that's like millennia away. And she said, I can't believe how quickly time has gone. I've talked with a lot of people in their 90s. <laughs> My mom used to say that. Good night, where did time go? I'm 95 years old. Life is a vapor. It's a mist. We're reminded of this in 1 Chronicles 29. For we are sojourners before you, tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. Our Job said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath, and as a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. The psalmist said it this way, my days are like the evening shadow, and I wither away like grass. Life is short, and death is sure. There's no doubt about it. And it doesn't matter what station we are in life, how much money we have, you know, we, all that stuff doesn't matter. I've said at funerals many times, life is like a game of chess. There are there are kings and queens and bishops and, and, and lowly pawns. But, you know, when the, when the game is over, they all go back into the same box. The frailty of life. It helps guard against presumptuous planning. We don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. And we are frail and short on life. There's a third uh, principle to guard against presumptuous planning, and that is that we need to accept our need for dependence upon God. He says in verse 15, instead we ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we shall live, we will do this, we will do that. Now, James doesn't want us to react and dread over our frailty. He doesn't want us to respond with depression over the brevity of our life. What he's calling us to do is to respond with dependency, to trust the Lord in the midst of our, our mistful, vaporous life. That's where, all, that's where we find meaning, right? That's where hope is found. That's where joy is found. That's where it all rests in our relationship with the living God, dependency on God and, and asking him, Lord, whatever you will, that's what I want for my life. If the Lord wills, he cautions us, James does, to guard our attitude that we don't set ourselves up as the sovereign in our life. Because there is only one sovereign, it's God. If the Lord wills, Lord, if this is what you want, and, and it's not that we tack on that little phrase, I, I do it mindlessly sometimes. Well, if the Lord wills, hey, we'll get together if the Lord wills. <laughs> Maybe we need to be a little more serious about that. Dependency on God means dependency on God. It's not doing what I want to do and then slapping the Lord will thing on it. It's like that. I've probably shared this before, the old farmer who, who hated farming. He didn't want to be a farmer. He actually wanted to be in the ministry. He's sitting on his tractor out in the field one day, and he's just pondering the, his stinking lot in life, and he's looking up into the heavens and kind of arguing with God, and all of a sudden, Lo and behold, the clouds begin to form, and it, it's the letter, letter P. It's as clear as could be, and then the letter C. P, C. 
preach Christ. And he jumped off the tractor, got some little education in the mail, and went off and found a church. And after about a number of few weeks of preaching, a friend came up to him and put his arm around him and said, hey, Bob, are you sure that PC didn't mean plant corn? Let's not slap the label of God's will on things that we want to do. This is, this is Christianity in all seriousness. Because he says, if we don't bring God into our plans, it's evil. Verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Every time we leave God out of a decision, we're basically saying, I think I can handle this. I'm sovereign. You're not. And Paul or James is saying, hey, that, that's just, that's evil. And then there are those times that we know what God wants us to do, right? He's nudging us. It's as clear as could be. Go here. You know, talk with that person. And I just don't want to. I mean, it doesn't fit my schedule. And so we can rationalize and figure out uh, I, I'll, I'll, another time. And Paul sa or James says there in verse 17, therefore the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, that's called sin. Evil and sin. <laughs> and by the way, those are characteristics that could be placed on a Christian's life. We exclude God from the plans. Our life is arrogantly evil and sinful. Young person, are you um, planning on going to that particular college because that's what you want to do? That's what your parents want to do? That's what your high school counselor wants you to do? Is it what God wants you to do. Retired person planning that next winter vacation somewhere? Is that what God wants you to do? I mean, do we even stop and ask that? Well, but it's the next thing on my bucket list. Well, is that bucket list ordained by God? I mean, this is, this is practical Christianity. Christianity and shoe leather. If, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, James, Paul, the, the New Testament writers are saying, this is kind of the normal way we need to be thinking. Lord, what is it you want for my life? I've been bought with a price. If you know Jesus, you've been bought with a price. Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins. He went to the cross to have a relationship for eternity with you. He loves you with an everlasting love. We're not our own. He purchased us the very least we should say, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Now, I am so grateful for a God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. I'm so glad we serve a God not like some cantankerous, nasty old grandfather who, who just squashes. My, my grandkids were here after the second service, a couple of them, and they were jumping around up here on the stage, you know, and I said, hey, Haddon, get, get off the stage. You might knock over the no. Did, did, did I hear you just say no? Get off the stage. Oh, okay, Grandpa. <laughs> you 
Now, I don't, I don't think he thinks I'm a killjoy because we do have a lot of fun together. But God is not some mean old granddad that just squelches all our fun. He loves us. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. He wants us to have that bucket list. He, he's, I'm sure, glad that we can go somewhere on vacation somewhere. What he's saying is just, am I factoring into the plans? Do you love me? Do you love me enough to, to realize I am your sovereign king and I know what's best for you and I'll direct you, but you've got to submit yourself to me. We see this in Paul's life. What James said was, was this radical commitment to Christ, and, and Paul had it in spades. I want to go to Spain. Lord, if that's where you want me. I want to stop in Rome. I can't wait to get there if that's what you want for me. But I, I feel the need to go to Jerusalem, and I want to take this gift, and I it could put my life in danger, but if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. Lord, here's my life. Take it. Consecrate it wholly to Thee. For the Apostle Paul, two things were preeminent. It was sharing the gospel, being salt and light in this world, understanding that that's what we've been saved for. We're not just saved to get together and high-five each other in little holy huddles and wait for the Lord's return. We've got a commission, we've got a calling into this world to proclaim, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, the excellencies of Christ. The people you work with, the people you, your neighbors with, even maybe close friends with, relatives, in their heart, they don't like Jesus, many of them. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But you know that the most important thing in their life is for them to connect with Jesus. Because it's in His presence there's fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And if you know Christ, you've experienced that. And for the Apostle Paul, he just... He just wanted to share the good news of Jesus. He wanted to gospelize and he wanted to glorify God. That whatever I do, in word and deed, he said, I want God to be honored. I want God to be glorified. Are we there in our Christian walk, folks? Are we having that kind of radical commitment where, Lord, whatever you want, if I go here, if I say this, if I do that, will that in any way enhance the good news to this person and will it bring you glory. And we live our life in sweet communion and fellowship with our Savior. And that's eternal life. That's experiencing the abundant life that Jesus said, I came to give you. He would say, stop living for yourself. Start living for me. And your life will be amazing. Even if you end up in prison.
Let's pray. So, Father, grant us grace to hear your word, uh, to follow you wholeheartedly. This call, as we'll sing, the call of the kingdom is placed on our, our hearts, on our life. You have bought us, you purchased us, you redeemed us with precious blood. May we say, if this is what you want for me, if this is what your will is for me, I want to be like Jesus, to do thy will, O oh God. Use us, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.